This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Was how professional the Mexican But government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what no happened. role at all in the NAFTA negotiations. In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Caravans from Central America, they were big news for a while, now they're not, but they probably will be again. They did, as I said, opened up uh, a trickle there and they were moving them uh, three busloads at a time to a refugee camp. There was tear gas, they literally forced the gates open at one point, but the federales forced them back. I'm your host, Richard Miles, and here to help us understand the phenomenon is Manuel Orozco, Director of Migration, Remittances, and Development at the Inter-American Dialogue here in Washington, and also a senior fellow at Harvard University's Center for International Development. Welcome to the show, Manuel. So, uh, Manuel, for first-time guests, I always ask uh, them to tell our listeners a little bit about themselves, uh, pre-professional, your pre-professional life. So, you know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Um, what was your early life like? I'm a product of the Cold War. I'm from <laughs> Nicaragua. Okay. So I, I was born during the Somoza dictatorship and was a student activist during the regime, the, the military dictatorship of um, Anastasio Somoza de Baile. And then came the Nicaraguan revolution and I was active in the revolution until things turned out sour uh, with Daniel Ortega at the time in 1980s. And I had to leave the country for political reasons in 1983. Since then, I went to Costa Rica, and then I moved to the U.S. in 1988. 1988. And I've been um, in the U.S., uh, you know, as an American citizen, uh, very grounded on this uh, political culture, and in Washington, which is a very unique and sui generis um, group of people. And That's a very charitable uh, description of Washington. Most people would <laughs> use. <laughs> well, you know, the, I I lived in other cities. I I've been to at least more than two thirds of states and several cities, and I lived in a few of them. Austin, Texas, being one, um, during the the election of Ann Richards at the time and Clayton Williams well, right, and yes. and the weather forecast statement uh, times and. Um, and DC is just different. This, I mean, it's, it's not, I remember colleagues who used to tell me when I, I was teaching at the University of Akron uh, about 20 years ago, and they will say, you know, DC is just an ugly city to live in because there is nothing to do there. There are no hardware stores, <laughs> and I and I didn't understand what they meant until I moved here 20 years ago, and they're right. Um, there are only like three hardware stores, and they're hard to get into and like six gas stations in the entire city. So it's very different uh, to the rest of cities in the U.S. That's true, yes. We have a lot of uh, monuments, but not very many gas yeah. stations. Monuments, so, yeah, policy wonks, yeah, but good. not engineers. <laughs> good luck finding gas for your car, right? Yeah. Um, so Manuel, you are obviously an expert on Central America and, and uh, migration in particular, and recently the Inter-American Dialogue. Uh, you, you authored a report called Central America Migration, um, current changes in development implications. Uh, excellent report. Um, and one of the things you point out there is that uh, the trend of Central American migration in the United States, although we're looking at higher numbers now than we were, say, in 2000, 
uh, that since 2009, there's been a marked decrease uh, in my Central American migration to the United States. Could you just kind of give us a big picture in terms of what, what would you uh, tell us a little bit about the trend itself in terms of the numbers, but then what explains that fall off after 2009? Yes, there, there are interesting developments that have been shaping Central American migration basically since the post-Civil War period. And they respond mostly to a demand for foreign labor in the United States. Um, that coincides with the democratic transitions going on in those countries, especially the reconstruction, post-war reconstruction efforts in El Salvador, Nicaragua, even Guatemala. And <clears throat> people migrated to uh, the United States in perhaps relative to the annual inflow of people, uh, it was perhaps in larger numbers than it is today. Um, that changed after 2009, after the recession, the international financial crisis, uh, for a number of reasons. One of them was that um, from 2010, more or less, there is a different outlook in terms of what's going on in Central America. The region becomes the, the scenario of deep turf wars among drug cartels where at least 10 drug cartels were operating the region to transship over 500 tons of cocaine that come to the U.S. Um, paradoxically, only one and a half million people consume 500 tons of cocaine. They are worth nearly $40 billion. The Central American cartels get somewhere around 3% of the profit of that uh, sale. But they caused a lot of havoc in the region. And one of the consequences of that has been the um, outflow of Central Americans. That outflow, however, hasn't been as large in the past five years as it was in the 2009-2010 uh, period. Between 2009 and 2014, more or less, um, you see a high uh, migration rate resulting mo mostly from um, the drug uh, cartel wars. However, from 2014, more or less, to the present, there is being a shift, uh, a small uh, decline in the number of migrants that are coming into the U.S. And that's been related to increased boarding apprehensions, increased deportations, um, that what, what you can see in practical terms is that the actual number of people uh, that are coming is relatively smaller to the number of people that were coming prior to 2014. Um, now, that you know may seem counterintuitive to some extent, in the sense that people have continued to migrate, and predominantly because of insecurity reasons. At least 300,000 Central Americans leave the region since 2009, but the numbers have been slowing down relatively uh, in small numbers. Perhaps a, a 2% decline every year uh, has been occurring, especially since 2014, 2015. So what you're describing sounds like a very dynamic situation that you've got multiple factors uh, all occurring at once. You have, on one hand, uh, gang violence or cartel violence and instability. You have uh, changing economic conditions in Central America, but also in the United States. Uh, as you mentioned, the financial crisis, uh, the a housing collapse, um, and then you finally you have uh, U.S. enforcement actions on the border uh, or U.S. policies about uh, whether it's asylum and, and so on. 
one that you you didn't mention um, was remittances, and uh, remittances, of course, are the the money that um, a lot of immigrants will send back to their home countries, wire it back, or send back cash. And for small countries like Central America, that that's a pretty big deal, right? As a as a percentage of the national income, can you give us a sense of of what is the relationship between you know, I mean. It, as you have more Central Americans sending back remittances, either it's because there are more here or they're earning more money, whatever, does that pull more Central Americans out of Central America? Or is it the opposite in which, uh, you know, if, if someone can support their family in Central America with their remittances, that this family then stays as opposed to leaving? Well, the, I think the answer is both. The, when we look at the, the determinants of international migration, there are different factors. The the push and pull theory not necessarily is consistent with what's going on in the global context. For Central America, there are four definite factors which are hard to really pinpoint which one is has more strength. But one is the demand for foreign labor in the United States. The United States has a very robust demand for low-skilled workers. For example, um, the United States labor force in construction is only 4% of the entire labor force. But nearly half of that uh, group of people actually are foreign-born workers, predominantly uh, Central American and Mexican uh, workers. Same thing is the uh, demand for foreign labor in domestic work. Um, One-third of migrants in the U.S., female migrants, are domestic workers, nannies, maids, etc. So that factor has really an important impact in pulling people. Um, the other factor, uh, which is somewhat the push factor, but it's also the transnational one, is the one related to insecurity. The transnational organized crime networks create pathways for getting people out in particular places. For example, if you are in a town like La Ceiba in Honduras, La Ceiba is, is a region that exhibits one of the highest rates of homicides but it's also, uh, as a consequence of it, has one of the highest rates of emigration. 5% of Hondurans come from that part of the country, and it's only a town of 100,000 people. So, so that's the second factor. The third factor is transnational ties. Central American migration dates back more or less from the early 80s, but the links that exist between families in the U.S. and families in Central America creates a factor of migration, um, seeking people to reconnect. That explains to some extent why 2014 had this, uh, what, you, what it was called, the surge of unaccompanied minors, uh, because there was some frustration about Central American migrants that they were not reconnecting with their families because there was no immigration reform. Um, and then... The other factor, and perhaps the most important one, is the economic. The productive capacity of Central America is really remedial. Uh, Central American countries, the so-called Northern Triangle and Nicaragua, have some of the lowest levels of productivity in the world. And so they, they generate incomes that are under $100 a month. So on those conditions, when the cost of living in Central America is about $500, you have very limited options. So the, the four elements are combined, um, push people out, create the conditions for immigration. But 
One of the des deciding factors of emigrating is to find a solution to the day-to-day -day lives of people. And that's where remittances come in. People realize that they need to send money to take care of their families, and they are better off emigrating, looking after their relatives on a transnational context, and while at the same time having a vulnerable position in the U.S., um, they are taking care of their families. And so on the aggregate, remittances represent about 15% of the country's GDP. And they are definitely an important source of revenue for the economy. Central American economies are really underperforming. Um, the labor force is predominantly informal. You have uh, at least three quarters of the labor force working in the informal economy, living on no more than two minimum wages in revenue and in practical terms, living on less than one month of salary, um, of minimum wages. So you cannot really sustain a reliable standard of living under the conditions that Central America is, uh, is set right now. And that's one of the factors that, that make people migrate. And in that, uh, as a follow-up, you send remittances to their home country. Is it an incentive to emigrate? It, it is. Um, is it a a byproduct of the context in which you are, it is. You're living out of insecurity. The chances of being killed in Central America are much higher than emigrating. Therefore, uh, you try to find a way to take care of your families. And so while you are in the U.S., you try to look after them, uh, sending them money, and more recently, not only sending money uh, for the day-to-day -day activities, but also to improve uh, their quality of life through investments, through other type of economic activities. Give us a sense of the of the historical context of of Central American migration, because I know in the Mexican case, uh, I know Mexico much better than Central America. We there, we saw a, a huge wave of migration in uh, the late '90s through the early 2000s, where if you look at the uh, the apprehensions at the southwest border. In, in 2000, for instance, there was over 1.6 million people apprehended, uh, and, and probably 90% of them were Mexicans. So all the data, whether it's CBP or um, things that other people have done, like Pew, show this huge spike right about the last few years, the 90s, and then declining. Um, have we seen a similar pattern in Central American migration? And then going back even further, uh, at, at what point did Central American migration start picking up? Um, and again, in the Mexican case, you, you look back to sort of already in the 80s, you were starting to see a very steady and steep um, rise. But if you go back to sort of the 60s and 50s, it was much, much lower uh, from Mexico. What sort of patterns have we seen, say, even going back that far, 50 years from Central America? Well, um I think Mexico and Central America have relatively different experiences. The, the Mexican labor force has been predominantly a reserve labor force for the U.S. economy. And so you see peaks of migration to the U.S. related to certain demands in the U.S. economy. Past the 1980s, when the United States goes through economic transformations, the deindustrialization process, the age of services, there is a diversification in the demand for foreign labor. That coincides also with the period of economic uh, change that goes on in Central America in the 1990s. 
And that's where you see an increase of Central American migration. The first wave of migration, the real wave of migration from Central America occurs in the 1980s, during the civil wars. You see an outflow of Nicaraguans, of Salvadorans, and later on of Guatemalans. Guatemalan migration and Honduran migration is actually is a phenomenon of the post-1990s. Um, particularly in the case of Honduras, is is a phenomenon that occurs after Hurricane Mitch. And you, most Hondurans actually start leaving the country by the mid-90s. The same thing ha- occurs with Guatemalans, whereas El Salvadorans and Nicaraguans uh, go back to the mid-70s. So you see different waves of migration taking place. That explains partly why El Salvadoran migration has been slowing down in larger numbers than the other two countries. Um, now, from 2000 to 2010, more or less, there is an increase of Central American migration, mostly responding to demands of foreign labor. But as the organized crime networks intensify, then the complexities of uh, living in Central America become so dangerous that people start making choices to move. And in practical terms, you see by basically the period 2014, more or less, to the present, that at least 300,000 Central Americans are trying to leave the region. Um, It makes this to be the third largest out-migration wave in the world after Syria and Venezuela. And before uh, the past two years, it was the second largest migration wave uh, after Syria. So there are different periods of the history of migration, but Central American migration is relatively new. It's a 1980s phenomenon. And then the rest is the conjunction of different developments, transnational ties, the continuity of the demand for low-skilled labor um, as the U.S. economy diversifies, and then the issue of insecurity with a continued underperformance of these economies. So we recently saw uh, at least one, actually more caravans of Central Americans, primarily from Honduras. Uh, It started out from Honduras traveling up through Mexico, and then as of when we're recording this podcast, the largest group or the first group is in in Mexico City trying to make its way to the border. Um, Started out, the first group, roughly one estimate had it about 7,000. Now it's down to somewhere in the three to 4,000 range. And I think most estimates are it could be a fraction of that if if any of these make it to the border. Now, the, the conventional reason I've heard is why caravans is because it's safer for the migrants are less vulnerable to uh, hum- to uh, human uh, smuggling, to uh, assault, to robbery, et cetera. Given what you have seen right now in the situation, is this now the new normal? Are we going to see more of this in the next few years for all the reasons that you listed? Is, is this uh, tactic of traveling in very large groups, is that seen as a winning tactic by Hondurans, by Guatemalans, as, as, a, as a, at least a better chance to make it to the United States. And then I'll just go ahead and ask my follow-up question right now is on that. Is there anything that the United States can and should be doing, or Mexico for that matter, to in any way dissuade or uh, counter or you know, stop these, care, these large groups uh, from coming? Well... The, the, the caravan phenomenon has been dramatized too much in the media 
and exploited to a large extent by the media itself as a matter of, of finding ways to link one news story with another. And that was, you know, Trump is anti-immigrant, therefore let's point out that there is this caravan going on and see how he responds. So you saw what happens, you know, you, you tease the monster and the monster goes back against you. Um, now, the fact is that th these caravans have been going on for decades. They are not new. Um, perhaps the most notable moment where there is a, an event that a caravan comes across is in 2010 with the massacre of 73 mostly Honduran migrants in Mexico by the Zetas. Um, that is a turning point in the migration history of Central America. A turning point because it opens the eyes of Central American leaders that there is a reality going on that they be, they were basically in denial. Um, and that reality was not migration. That reality was that the reason why you have high homicide rates in Central America in the in that period, 2010 to up until 2016, the daily homicide for the Northern Triangle was 45 homicides a day. More people were killed in the Northern Triangle than in Iraq. Um, and the majority of those deaths were directly related and are still directly related not to youth gangs, which is the typical explanation that is done very liberally, but it's actually organized crime network infights among drug cartels. Especially this, this is a phenomenon that occurs during then-President Calderon, who launched his famous war on drugs against the cartels, and it backfires dramatically in Mexico, creating a high wave of violence, but it also um, spills over Central America. Drug cartels cross over Mexico. The Zetas, for example, come in into Guatemala, into Honduras, and take over places uh, and take over the work of doing the drug transshipment. So that dangerous situation is one factor that leads to many people to find another way to emigrate. And the caravan comes along in that context. Now, so it's in not terms of dates, we're talking roughly about 2000, what, 10, 10, 10, 2010, 2010, 2011. Okay. And so uh, Pueblos Sin Fronteras and other religious groups begin organizing charities, charitable organizations in Mexico, begin organizing in the trek near where the so-called train of death uh, was take, taking migrants uh, to provide shelter, to provide certain basic food to these people who were coming from Central America, escaping the conditions in the region. Um, so these caravans were small groups of people. What has happened now is not a new normal. It's the pattern that has occurred, but it's being now under the magnifying glass lens of uh, the media because migration is a political issue, it's a polarizing issue in the United States, it's always been, but under this uh, presidency, it's an exploiting issue, and one that is intolerable to the president, for other reasons, mostly unrelated to why they're coming to the United States. So what do you expect to happen in the next couple of years? I think it's a continuity of this pattern, whether in the form of a caravan or not, people will continue to come, not in the same 
uh, large waves. I think we still see perhaps 300,000 people trying to leave the region and about 120,000 making it in one way or another. Um, many of them will try to apply for asylum. It is, it is morally and politically unjustifiable uh, and undefensible to argue that they come here just for opportunistic reasons. Every condition, every person that comes in has a legitimate reason to have left their country. And we cannot question that until they go through the legal process to demonstrate their case. Um, now, an, uh, an important reality that is happening is that not only this is one phenomenon, but also that most migration from Latin America is a byproduct of state fragility. So you're not only seeing people from the Northern Triangle, but now you see a large wave of Nicaraguans coming to Costa Rica and to the United States escaping repression of the Sandinista regime. And you also have uh, Venezuelans, Cubans, Haitians leaving their countries in search of better conditions. Um, and this brings up, well, the, f the question as to what can Central American countries do, what the international community do, what the U.S. can do. I think the answer is what I called it five R's, reform, relief, retention, recruitment, and return. I immigration reform is much needed. There are 10 million uh, migrants in the United States who are unauthorized, but they have been at least 13 years in this country. About 3 million of them or less are from Central America. Some form of uh, legal reform needs to be introduced for them to legalize their status. That even includes those under TPS and DACA. The second element is relief. There are at least 100,000 Central Americans who have applied for asylum with legitimate reasons. Currently, the uh, adjudication of asylum rate is at 3%. It's really low and it's mostly politicized. This issue needs to be addressed, especially if you know that people are escaping conditions of state fragility. And the third factor, the third uh, solution is recruitment. There is an effective demand for foreign labor, and we have the visa location for that, the H-2B visa. Um, it's for low-skill labor to work in certain economic activities for which there is a demand. That's construction, domestic work, services in hospitality industry that could fill another 60,000 people um, and recruit that population. And the fourth, retention and return is important, and that's the development strategy for Central America. The, the United States need to rethink with the Central American leaders a new type of alliance for prosperity that focuses on the economic conditions in the region, highly informal and predominantly concentrated on agricultural exports in ways that you transform Central America into a service-based economy that provides uh, outputs based on human capital, not on agricultural commodities. And that will be a factor that will minimize migration, will make migration a choice, not a necessity. So those are some of the issues that I think the international community and the U.S. can contribute. I do agree with President Trump that Central American leaders need to be held accountable for letting people go uh, and for not improving the conditions in their countries. They are paying lip service to the conditions in Central America. Corruption is rampant. Political corruption is just you know, a terrible thing in Guatemala. 
Honduras is an illegitimate government. And so they have to be held accountable. Uh, but you need to address this from a more comprehensive standpoint. And the five R's are a way to deal with this. Uh, Manuel, that sounds like a, a very sensible uh, long-term fix. In the short term, Mexico, though, is it has a problem, right? Uh, Mexico, and particularly the new government, Lopez Obrador, I, I think before there, I got the sense that Mexico uh, attitude was essentially, you know, this is really a U.S. problem, um, and it just happens to be crossing our borders. And and I don't think that Lopez Obrador, his government, will be able to get away with that stance because it is now a Mexican problem. Um, what do you see in terms of? Do you think there will be a willingness, uh, or, or what happens? This just take this as a thought experiment. If the Mexican government says, says uh, okay, well, we're not going to help you get to the United States, but we are going to give you asylum in Mexico, uh, and we're going to basically recognize your status here, do you then see a wave of Central American migration to Mexico with the intent of a better life and, and so on? Or or is it really the United States or, or nothing? Or is Mexico – could Mexico find itself in this – no man's land in terms of like Central Americans really want to go to the United States, but they'll settle for Mexico. Well, the, the choice of the U.S. is not accidental. Most people come here because they have relatives in the United States. So Mexico becomes less attractive if you don't have a reason to stay. And another factor is that Mexico um, has its own demons, has its own problems. And while president, the, the next president, Obrador, uh, may want to offer something, um, I think he is going to realize that um, he has to have a better strategy than what he's offering right now. He's offering agricultural jobs. Well, that's not going to keep you in Mexico. He's offering um, some opportunities for asylum. Well, that could be an option for some people, but uh, at the end of the day, um, it is the transnational ties that connect you. I think one important strategy for Mexico, which he, the president may be open, I don't know if the United States may be open, is to integrate itself in the Alliance for Prosperity and provide funding uh, and put more pressure on, on the, the Central Americans. But you know, a lot of these solutions are not long-term, they are short-term. The development strategies have been addressed um, for several years, and they can have important effects in the country's economies if they are sound and consistent with the realities. So uh, relief to migrants seeking asylum is also a short-term strategy that needs to avoid the negation or the denial that people are actually escaping the conditions in the region. Uh, Manuel, we're out of time, but I want to commend you again for an excellent report, Central American Migration, uh, available at the Inter-American Dialogue website. And uh, this has been very, very informative and educational for me, I hope, for our listeners. And I look forward to having you back on the show again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.